Hey everybody, it's Michael here, and welcome to the Goody Reader Radio Show. Welcome to the weekend edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name, of course, is Michael, and we have some cool little segments today. We're going to talk about a recent Smashwords article that they released, and they talked everything about what is the best pricing for ebooks, what comprises a good title name, cover art. So if you're an indie author or you're thinking of writing your first title, you may want to stay tuned for that. We're going to talk about the rumored Microsoft deal and Barnes & Noble, but also talk about how Barnes & Noble, with their price slashes in both the U.S. and U.K., is creating unparalleled demand for their products. Finally, libraries. Kind of a nerdy subject, I know, but here at Goody Reader, we're a strong supporter of literacy and, and reading and getting people uh, involved in that type of culture. 
I've learned a lot about libraries during the course of this last week. We all hear about Simon and Schuster and Penguin initiating ebook pilot projects with some major libraries in New York. Now, what exactly is involved in that whole process? You know, sure, we read the press releases or we may see something on Twitter, Facebook, or if you're in the publishing world, reading publications like Goody Reader and finding out what's involved. Press releases don't really tell you a lot. In order to really find out, you have to talk with the publishers, you have to talk with the libraries, and you have to talk with companies like Overdrive, 3M, and Baker and Taylor that facilitate digital library lending and see what's involved. Well, we've done it. We've released a series of mega articles during this last week with interviews with everybody involved. And so if you want to learn more about what's involved in a pilot project, the logistics, the semantics, and all of the details in between, we're going to talk about that. First of all, I want to talk about a Smashwords article. Smashwords is one of the leading indie bookstores. Um, Mark Coker, who's involved in, in running it, he's a very smart dude. Mark basically travels around most of the publishing circuits talking about his company Smashwords, but also writing some pretty insightful articles about the process of self-publishing and what it actually means to be relevant in today's world. Some very interesting data came out of, of what he said. Basically, most books that are for sale sell marginally, but the ones that are considered bestsellers obviously sell really well. So, why is that? Uh, strange dynamic uh, of a book rising up in sales and more people buying them and even more copies being sold due to its higher ranking. Well, what's involved in that? Well, the lengths of books and their titles seem related. Longer books in terms of word count sell better than shorter books, but books with shorter titles sold better than books with longer titles. Well, what does it mean for pricing? Because obviously, ebook pricing is a huge um, proponent to being able to actually sell. Well, Smashwords data said that two ninety nine seemed the most popular price for authors to set, but additional data asked the question if the three ninety nine price point was a more of effective term. Well, it seems that. Between two ninety nine and three ninety nine are the best prices for ebooks. When you pay that type of price, people see it as being a more valued investment than say a ninety nine cent title. Once you start to spend a few dollars statistically, people are more likely to give the book a chance other than just a ninety nine cent impulse read. There's a great article on the front page of our website. I suggest to check it out because he kind of really gets into once you start selling the book at a few dollars how the royalty percentages are actually a little bit higher Barnes and Noble TechCrunch put out an article and it pretty well set the blogosphere on fire they're claiming that Microsoft is looking to invest and make Barnes & Noble de-invest of the entire Nook Media division. And the rumor is, is that Microsoft offered $1 billion. It's funny how one article could have such a profound effect. Within the next day, 
the Barnes and Noble stock actually increased by 12%. And so this put a substantial amount of money in their coffers just because of a rumor. Well, what is this all about? Microsoft and Pearson actually put money into Nook Media. Before they did that, the Barnes & Noble Nook division was a part of their bookstore. So if you can imagine, Barnes & Noble is a singular entity. They do their college bookstores. They do their brick-and-mortar bookstores. And Nook was something that fell into uh, the brick-and-mortar stores. When Pearson, which is the parent company of Penguin, and Microsoft invested in the company, it basically splintered it away from being a part of the brick-and-mortar store and created its own singular digital division. Now, a lot of people don't know that, but that was one of the big reasons why Barnes & Noble basically spun off the Nook ebook division away from the brick-and-mortar stores because if they ever decided to sell it, it would be way easier to sell as its own singular entity rather than it be a part of the overall Barnes & Noble experience. Microsoft has a modest stake in the company. They gave them about $300 million uh, back in the day, and this it was able to allow Barnes & Noble to make uh, a Windows 8 app. I believe Microsoft gave them a $190 million advance just so when Windows 8 comes out, there's a Barnes & Noble e-reading app available. Well, Windows 8 launched, it took about a month before the actual Nook app hit, and there's still not a Nook app for the Windows 8 phones, which definitely ruffles some feathers. The entire rumor basically is that Microsoft wants the the Nook ebook division and they want the e-reader division to be able to do with as they will. I would say that Microsoft offering ebooks is a more compelling argument than um, you know and to do battle against say an Apple or an Amazon. Microsoft is a major player, obviously, with very deep pockets. They would be able to more effectively compete against Amazon and Apple than Barnes & Noble is able to on its own with a few minority equity stake partners in the whole deal. So another rumor is, is that Barnes & Noble is looking to de-invest themselves of their tablet division. This is some pretty profound revelations. There's no secret that Barnes & Noble is losing money. Um, the company is not exactly in a sordid state of affairs, but they have lost a few hundred million dollars last year, and they're set to lose about $315 million in 2013. Most of that is allocated to tablets. They're a low-margin item. So when Barnes & Noble manufactures them, Due to com the competitive nature against other tablets on the market, Samsung, Amazon, Acer, Asus, Google, insert generic tablet name here, Barnes & Noble has to offer their tablets at a very cheap price in order to compete against the other cheaply priced tablets on the market. So it doesn't really leave them a lot of profit margins. And then as a retailer selling this tablet, your profit margins are even slimmer. So Barnes & Noble is finding it a hard time to actually sell its tablets, which is why they have slashed the prices from the tablets on the UK and in North America, more particularly the USA is the only market that they actually sell in. And so Barnes & Noble sees tablets as a loss leader, whereas their e-reader division has slightly better profit margins and they're able to drastically compete with products. 
Barnes & Noble lowered the price of its Nook Simple Touch in the UK from around £79 to only £29. Since that happened, the Barnes & Noble brand has never been bigger in the UK. This is primarily due to a £29 e-reader, which is the cheapest on the market, and Sainsbury, um, Blackwell's, Foils, they're all sold out. And so you would be actually hard-pressed to find a Nook e-reader in hardly any bookstore in the UK. Uh, To further put them in the news, they partnered with the London Evening Standards Get London Reading Campaign. And Barnes & Noble donated actually 1,000 e-readers to the national literary charity Beanstalk. So... Barnes & Noble is actually seeing some success with its e-readers. I mean, they're sold out in the UK. You couldn't really find them anywhere. Now, this is not the Glowlight model. This is the predecessor to that. It's still a very solid e-reader, but the price is right. And a price of under $30 for an e-reader, most people will buy it. And I've talked to a lot of people on the mobile read forum, on our own goodie reader forum, user comments, social media about has the price reduction prompted you to go out and just buy an e-reader, upgrade to e-reader, just to purchase one either for the first time or as a supplement to your existing one. And most people have said, yes, I've gone out and done it. The tablet division, I could see is it being struck down, but it actually is getting more visibility now, at least in the short term, because Google Play is now available on the Barnes & Noble HD and the HD+. This allows people in the UK, for example, to get access to apps they normally could not, such as the BBC iPlayer, BBC Sport, Love Film. Apps like this weren't available in Barnes & Noble's own curated app store but now that it has google play it's prompting people to come out of the woodwork and actually decide to purchase a tablet and we've actually seen this more to a greater degree in the uk but seen as though that those tablets have also seen price reductions in the u.s a lot of people are saying yeah I, I had the Nook Color, but I upgraded a you know a Google tablet. But now that it has Google Play, I'm going to switch back to Nook. A lot of customers who maybe had the first generation iPad and are looking for something a little bit more reading centric are also upgrading to the Nook tablet. I do think that this is short term. I think that the novelty of Google Play will wear off, but it doesn't look like that this year that Barnes and Noble is going to announce a new tablet. If they do. I, for one, will be very surprised, but all signs are pointing to Barnes & Noble at least continuing their e-reader division, scrapping their tablet division. I don't know if the rumor of Microsoft buying out Nook is realistic or not, but suffice to say, that's the big one happening today. I think more likely is Barnes & Noble is going to continue as normal. They're going to cut the loss leader for the company, which is tablet manufacturing, and go with something that has a very high profit margin which is their e-reader line libraries what fond memories i have about my entire youth in school libraries and public libraries uh, discovering new authors uh, being bored for an afternoon waiting for some friends going to the library and reading some books yes i was a reading child but i was not a nerdy child so Libraries have a fond place in my heart. Libraries, when it comes to the physical books, 
you can find anything that you want. A good library has a stock selection of the latest bestsellers, the hottest authors, as well as books that we may have grown up reading. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Forgotten Realms, fantasy books, Lord of the Rings, you name it. Most big libraries have many copies of that. When it comes to the digital copies, though, Big publishers have been a little bit apprehensive about getting involved in the library arena. We heard years ago the library said if you give a digital book away for free, it devalues the product. That was the old argument, but it's hard to it's hard to not neglect that ebooks sales wise are reaching phenomenal heights. Penguin is now seen around 24% of their global revenue stem from ebooks. A year ago, it was around 12%. So that's a dramatic jump in a one year's time. So this has prompted publishers to give their ebooks in a library environment a second look. Penguin did it last year. They committed to a pilot program with Access 360 and 3M, and then they did a national rollout. A hatchet got involved in libraries, but more recently, Simon & Schuster has done a pilot program with the New York Public Library, Brooklyn, and Queens. Now, of course, you know, I read all the press releases. I write about all this stuff. I follow it, but I still don't really know What's involved in getting a pilot project, you know, off the ground? As a 3M, for their cloud library, for Baker and Taylor's Access 360, even the libraries themselves, what's, what's the whole picture? What happens from negotiation with the publisher to implementing a pilot program? Well, I found all this out. I spent two solid days doing nothing but talking with libraries and talking with these content distribution systems at very great lengths. And they were very candid in the way that the negotiations start. So let's talk about 3M and Baker and Taylor's Access 360 because they're the ones that were selected for the pilot program. We talked to both companies and there was a lot of similarities. They had dialogues open for a number of years. Baker and Taylor has been involved for decades and decades with physical books. And so they supply libraries with the physical books, and they jumped into the digital aspect. Now, because they were in physical books for so long, they have long-standing relationships with all the publishers. So they can call them up, they'll take their call, they've been dealing with them for years, so it's no big deal. So it gives them a little bit of negotiation power. 3M, on the other hand, is probably the younger company. It's only done ebooks in the past, but it has 3M money. The 3M library crew is actually fairly small, but they're very nimble, and they put a huge priority on doing what they say they're going to do delivery, meeting deadlines, meeting goals, but just always be hustling. That's sort of their model. So 3M has been talking with these major publishers for a number of years. Book Expo America, London Book Fair, Frankfurt Book Fair. Publishers usually travel the same circuit when it comes to um, these book fairs because they can get new authors, they can buy rights for specific geographical um you know, uh, locations and things like that. So that's the breeding ground in which all these companies sort of iron out all the details. 
when it actually comes to lo- the logistics of it, it's mainly the New York libraries that often get the, the nod over, say, a library in Canada or, you know, a library in Joe's Town, USA. You know, the New York Public Library, we actually spoke to one of the heads there. Uh, we spoke to Chris Platt, who is the director of collection and circulation operations. And so he saw that during a year, he got about 753,000 loans just in trade fiction, which was a huge jump over 173,000 three years ago. Overall lending in one year toppled 28 million digital books, audiobooks, movies, physical books, and music files. So 28 million loans. So you can see why that, that this library is selected as one of the, the trials because it doesn't really get much bigger. I believe that the New York Public Library is second only to the Library of Congress that actually gets more loans and views a year. It's data. This is the big reason why dealing with these libraries are so friendly. They have huge infrastructures, money ILS systems, and they deal with very solid companies such as 3M and Baker and Taylor. Chris said, when you don't pay attention to public libraries, you lose a large amount of data. Publishers aren't being exposed to that reader's behavior. Libraries aggregate data from all over the place. Funding agencies, government, annual reports. There is big value in sharing data with publishers, but the libraries and and the distributors have really stressed with me that no private information is given out. It's just how many books are sold, how many books are in circulation, how many people have viewed the book, how many people are on the waiting list for the ebook. Those are the types of data that they want. But often when libraries have this data, it's very heavy. You know, it's it's a very dry type of um, numbers and statistics. It isn't even in graphs. It's just like the raw data. Book title has this many loans, this many wait lists, this many views. This is the metrics. These are the statistics. It's It's very hard to digest. So a lot of the data that these publishers end up getting are actually from Baker and Taylor and 3M. So libraries will give these guys the big data, and then these guys will condense it all into a very easy-to-read fashion, You know, take a 500-page data summary, make it into a solid like 30-pager that basically outlines all the titles, the type of success, the top titles, an easy read as opposed to just reading a lot of nothing. So that's one of the big reasons why these publishers actually deal with a Baker and Taylor in 3M because they like the way that they compile these reports. They like the way that they've compiled the reports for Penguin and other pilot projects in the past. So mainly, a pilot project starts after years of dialoguing back and forth between, say, a 3M and a Baker and Taylor with the major publishers, trying to sway them over to the cause. Also, the American Library Association and the current president, Maureen Sullivan, they're constantly lobbying the publishers on the virtues of going digital. And don't forget, all these big publishers are not only at the book fairs, 
they're also you know there to get rights to to books as I stated, but they also travel the library circuit as well because they sell directly their tangible books to libraries. I've been at a lot of ALA events. And a dichotomy is actually very weird. It's You would figure people would be there kind of hyping the virtues of digital. It's not so much as the case. It's mainly like Pearson and HarperCollins and Hatchet and Scholastic and Zinio and all those companies are there, but they're just, you know, they're there selling books to library reps that are there representing their branches. It's not a place where you know, libraries are actually talking digital to these guys. It's only sort of behind closed doors and closed meeting rooms that those sort of dialogues actually start. I'm pretty happy with knowing a little bit about ILS. ILS is basically the back end of a library that monitors all the circulation rates. So, if you borrow a book from your public library, that book is recorded into an ILS system. Same thing with digital books. Although digital books and ILS systems have a lot of incompatibility issues, and I didn't actually know that. It wasn't really until I really talked to a lot of these libraries and to the companies that do business with them that I really even find out about how immature ILS is by today's digital standards. For example, the New York Public Library deals with OverDrive to facilitate ebook lending, but they also deal with 3M2. With 28 million loans a year when it comes to mainly physical books, but also digital well, that's a lot of content. So how does an ILS system actually cope with more than two more than one company handling the ebooks cuz it's two different back ends they're not really compatible with each other on top of your physical book loans your video loans your audiobook loans your music loans both digital and uh tangible it becomes very very difficult to ma- to navigate so there's a few companies out there that mainly are the leaders of the ILS system. I believe one is called Polaris. Um, I think that the other one is, I want to say like Triple I, but I'm not exactly too sure. I'm kind of just really kind of learning about ILS systems. Um, in any case... 3M, for example, has developed a series of public API tools that allow integration into ILS systems. But 3M actually has to deal with these companies right off the bat. So they have to sort of approach a I or a Polaris and say, okay, we need to simplify librarians' lives uh, by re- by reporting properly, check out sales and all aspects of daily dab." library life. And so a 3M will work with the Polaris to incorporate the the 3M API into the ILS. And so the ILS will have a firmware update that's pushed out to all the libraries and then a 3M can come along and say, "Look, you know, we we don't deal with you guys, but if you wanted to carry our system of ebooks in your library, it's compatible with your existing ILS because you know, Polaris has a fix there that will make cataloging and reporting to work just as seamless as the way it does when you loan out a physical book to 
grandma grandma rosemary so um I've learned a lot about ILSs, and it's actually a kind of a cool thing, but ILSs on their own weren't designed to for digital. They were mainly designed for tangible books. And so when you have a library that deals with more than one company, so you say you have a library like uh, New York Public Library, again, 3M and Overdrive, and then you lend out physical books, these ILS systems fail to present the big data that these publishers really want in an easily manageable fashion. The New York Public Library is well-financed. They have a money staff. They can afford to hire very smart IT people. Your mid-sized to small-town library does not have the budget to really have much of a staff at all. And so being able to cope with an ILS system that's compatible with both digital and tangible is the real challenge for your small library. And I would say that in talking with everybody, it's the weakest chain or the weakest spoke in the wheel, ILS systems as they stand. So I'm putting a challenge out to these companies to basically... For someone new to come along and develop an ILS system that's compatible with all the big digital companies or for IIII or Polaris to just natively adopt all the APIs for Access 360, for Overdrive, for 3M, uh, for eBerry, and every other company that digitalness drives library life. And so they need to do this. Otherwise, it's just a convoluted nightmare and this is exactly what I'm told. Finally, to wrap up my library diatribe, I actually spoke with the Bibliotech Digital Library. You may have not heard of this. Bexar County is a suburb of San Antonio. This library is going to be starting the world's first all-digital library that's actually publicly funded and has a tangible location. We've had online digital libraries that actually don't have a physical location and they could loan books out if you pay a subscription fee. There's multiple libraries that actually follow this model, but this one is different because it has a physical location. They'll have 48 computers, 300 e-readers, and three discovery terminals via 3M. It almost looks like a futuristic Apple store in uh, the way that the, the, um, the concept art is actually laid out. And when we talked to Laura Cole, the special projects co- coordinator of Bibliotech, she said that the actual design is very much akin to uh, the concept art because the guys that did the concept art was the company that eventually won the contract to design the libraries. Incidentally, the library opens up in August and we'll actually be there live on the scene uh, to report on it. We talked to her basically about how did this idea originally occur and what was the time frame in which you guys were like, let's start a digital library to this is opens, oh God, in a few months. So she she said they first started discussing this in August 2012. They did their major research in that September and in December they basically had the plan all ironed out, factoring in all the pros and cons, and when January came around, they met with all the judges, the commissioner's court, and a city, and then they publicly announced that they were actually going to do this. Uh, They have a fair amount of money. They have about $200,000 for the first five years of eBooks, so that's 
quite the substantial investment. So kudos for 3M for landing that contract. So here's here's basically the challenge. Uh, of course, they're going to have education. They have a senior center right across the street, a, a generation that did not grow up with Apple iPads, uh, iPhones, Android touchscreen devices, and so on. They grew up with typewriters. They grew up with telegraphs. They grew up with the rise of the Industrial Revolution. Okay, maybe I'm being a bit more facetious, but you get the point. This is education and being able to say, you know, this is what technology can do for you is something that's a bit of a challenge to the library. They have an actually an education room, but actually being able to inform everyone on the virtues of navigating a tablet using an e-reader could be a little bit difficult, but you know, they do have a lot of iMacs there. They're pretty easy to use and read in terms of newspapers, magazines, and ebooks. One of the other challenges that they're facing them is all of the data and online reporting tools. Like I said, the whole ILS, they have no way or no understanding about how any of that works. And so, again, that's one of the things that are challenging them. But they pretty well have everything else together. They have everything designed. Everything's pretty well ready to go for the August launch date. And it actually seems very money. One of the limitations of a publicly funded library is that only people within that particular county can borrow ebooks. She actually told me that she would love to be able to lend ebooks to people in neighboring counties that do not even have a bookstore, much less a library. And the problem is, is that if I'm a taxpayer in Bexar County and so much of my paycheck goes to the library fund and then my funds are being used to give people ebooks for free in neighboring counties, I'd be visibly pissed off. And if I'm in Texas, I'm, you know, I have my, I have my six shooter, I have my 10 gallon hat, I have my big mustache that's handlebarred out and has some shoe polish to make it all twisty. And I'm going to go yeehaw and I'm going to shoot my gun and I'm going to be pissed off and raise a ruckus. And so that's the mentality um, there. But mostly in the US, that's how it is. If you have a library that lends out digital books, you can only do it in your own county. And actually, I just found that out you know being from being a good old canadian boy it's a little bit different here the way that the libraries work you can go to a, a city or two away and just bring in your id and they'll give you a library card and let you borrow books i mean if i'm in vancouver if i want to drive out to richmond or burnaby and get a library card i just need to bring a bill or something with my address and they'll hook me up the problem is if i want to borrow a book i got to take public transit for two hours i gotta drive or i got a cab and i'm don't know if i'm quite willing to do that it's just easier to deal with the library right down my street so it's another challenge but the bibliotech library seems like a super cool idea first library in the world to be publicly funded and to be all digital with not a single book in sight Super cool. So this has been a very nerdy-esque library edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. And of course, as always, we talked a little bit about what the overall industry is doing. Just Barnes & Noble, libraries, and 
Smashwords reports has been really the biggest things that have come out this week. Of course, we publish close to 10 articles a day from four or five of our staff writers. So if you want to find out about digital comics, digital publishing, ebooks, e-readers, tablets, and everywhere in between, including startup industry, uh, make our website your number one destination. We are the major sponsors next to Publishers Weekly for the upcoming IDF IDPF conference, which happens two days before the formal launch of Book Expo America. So we'll be talking with Brad Stone, Malcolm Gladwell, Sylvia Day. We'll be talking with a number of great authors, as well as uh, some of the people from Goodreads. We'll talk to Otis Chandler, the co-founder and CEO of Goodreads, and really kind of find out exactly what the Amazon deal has meant for his company, but also the future of his company. And of course, we'll be doing a lot of BEA coverage as well. So if you're involved in that sector, you are good to go with Goody Reader. And for Goody Reader, my name is Michael, and everybody take care.